Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll be there in just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll get there. We've been in a series entitled, Whatever It Takes. Imagining together what it would look like if we would be a church that would do whatever it takes to help people get to Jesus. As you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, once you find it, I want you to look to the screens and read out loud with me uh, an impact declaration that we've been saying together over the last number of weeks. Let's read it together. I am part of a church committed to doing whatever it takes. I will disciple someone and allow someone to disciple me. I will be generous and faithful in giving to others. I will share Christ through my words and actions. To this end, my mind is set, my heart is humble, and my hands are ready. For I am part of a church committed to doing whatever it takes. Today, as we look at being a church who is generous and faithful in giving to others, I want us to examine the environment in which we find ourselves in our current state in America. We've been living in one of the worst economic slumps in many decades. It's been a hard season for many, and the society around us could be asking with great emphasis, what is going on? What is happening? Well, one of the things that is happening is that the God, lowercase g, the God of money, has died. Jesus calls this God of money, mammon, literally means stuff, possessions, things. And we are in a society where we're seeing people freak out. All you have to do is turn into your favorite news station and listen to them give the report on how the economy is and how it has bounced back a little bit in some places and other places not so much. And it's beginning to erode some people's confidence in what they had and their security and their resources. And the question for our society today is, How in the world are we going to live without our lowercase g, God, of money, of mammon, of stuff? How can we live without the one who has given us security and hope and peace of mind and a little bit of heaven here on earth and what I can earn and store up and keep and grow financially for myself? If I can't have solid footing in this kind of economic environment, what can I count on? I want to help us with that today, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are going to guide us. We're going to look at verse 1 through 6 in just a minute, but before we read that, uh, here we're going to meet a church that's a lot like ours. Paul is going to teach them some things, showing this Corinthian church uh, a few points from a model church in Macedonia. This Macedonian church is so exemplary in the category of generosity and in giving, that it's mentioned four times in the New Testament as an exemplary church. Paul gives at least seven principles. In fact, I'm just going to touch on seven of the generosity principles that Paul talks about in chapter 8 and 9. Let's look at the first one together. Generosity reveals God's grace. At least according to Paul, generosity uncovers, it reveals God's grace. Money is one of the ways that we can show that we belong to Jesus and how we understand that money can show how we belong to Jesus. Jesus talks about money 25% of the time. He's not shy on the subject, and so therefore I'm not able to skip over it. 
Jesus is very clear about the topic of money, of stuff, of possessions, and he spoke about it a lot. He says things like, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where our heart is reflects often in our finances. Look at verse 1 through 6 with me of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier, made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Here in this passage, grace is primarily talking about a financial grace or a financial gift or blessing. See that God has been blessing them financially and providing for his people. The Corinthian church is learning through Paul's teaching and learning from the example of the Macedonian church here in these chapters. Now, both churches were struggling, and they were in an economic recession, not totally unlike what we are in today. They were experiencing some financial hardships. But the Macedonian church, they were suffering far more painfully than those who lived in Corinth. The Macedonian church was at a deeper crisis financially. Everybody was struggling, but they were at a deeper crisis financially. This economic downturn hit them the hardest. Now, it's important to note for us, as we draw some conclusions to these two churches, we here are more similar to the Corinthian church. As we look at the economic cycle of what we are facing in our community, in our town, we would have in our situation more similarities to the Corinthian church. Here in the Fort Wayne greater area, we have experienced a a recession. We've experienced a hardship in, in finances. And yet, even though it has been tough, there are many cities in our nation around us who are at a catastrophic stage. Our economy is a little bit more diverse, and we haven't been hit as hard. But we are more like the Corinthian church who've gone through an economic challenge, but it's not quite at the level as some around us. Now, if you're here today and you have felt the impact of the economic status in our community. I don't want you to feel like in any way that I'm making light by saying it's not that big of a deal for Fort Wayne. If you've lost your job, it sure feels like a big deal. If you have taken a hit in some significant ways financially, it doesn't feel like it's no big deal. But the challenge here is that there are others around us who are suffering even greater financial challenges than what we find ourselves in. Our economy may be hurt, but it's not at the point of catastrophe that others have. Yet Paul is telling the Corinthians, like he would be saying to us today, that we are in the position, though we are struggling and though we may have some challenges, that is so different than the Macedonian church. He characterizes this church in a couple ways. He says they have severe affliction in extreme poverty. I want you to think about that for a second. Have you ever experienced severe affliction in extreme poverty? 
probably most of us in this room have never been touched with severe affliction and extreme poverty. There may be some, but my guess would be for an overwhelming majority of us, we have never experienced severe affliction and extreme poverty together. The question is, how did this Macedonian church respond to their trials? Paul says it's amazing. He says they had abundant joy and overflowing generosity. I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, doesn't matter which network you turn into, I don't see a lot of overflowing joy and abundant generosity when it talks about economics of those who are hurting. If you find that channel, tell me, because I want to get news from them. It's, it's not a common response, but yet that's where Paul is taking the Corinthian church to teach them a few things. So how in the world can we have overflowing joy and generosity in the midst of financial challenges? Well, the only way that we can have that is if our God is not money. If your joy is in the lowercase g of God, of, of mammon, of money, of stuff, if that's where you put your weight and your lowercase Gee, God is crucified, you're losing it, and there's no resurrection of that God in sight. There's no reason for hope. There's no reason for joy. And definitely generosity will not ooze out. But if your God is the one true God, if your Lord is Jesus Christ, and though you may lose some stuff, some mammon, you can have a response of overflowing joy and generosity because it is all God's anyway. What Paul is telling the Corinthian church is, the whole view you guys have of money is wrong. Now, that is an amazing uh, preaching point that's so popular with people. I can't imagine Paul going into Corinth and saying, hey guys, church, I love you. All of your view of money is wrong. Not like kind of wrong, not kind of tweaking a little bit. Let me give you some tips. It's wrong. It's not biblical. It's not Christ-centered. It is not Right, and this is going to become a challenge or a problem for you in your spiritual growth. To help us get at that, let's look at some cultural understanding that Corinth had that that we are a little bit distant from today. And that day, there are two things that they did not have that we have in our society that may make this seem a little bit different to hear Paul's words. They didn't have, one, banks like we have today where loans were available like they are today, or a line of credit is available like it is today. And they didn't have a social service network where when someone falls on hard times, there may be a safety net to provide some help for someone. They didn't have those two things available to them. Now what would happen is if you hit an economic pain point and you were suffering and you you, you couldn't go to the bank necessarily, you couldn't get a line of credit like we think of today, and, and you couldn't go to the government like we think of today, you only had one choice. The choice was to go to a wealthy person who would be your benefactor. A benefactor was someone who was affluent, they were rich, they were well-to-do, and you would have to grovel and you would have to beg and ask them to help you. And it was a very humbling and maybe even humiliating process that you were forced to go through. In this benefactor-to-beneficiary relationship, there was this inferior and superior positions in the relationship. If you then went to this benefactor and he agreed to give you some money, then you would become the beneficiary, the one who would receive. They were the giver, you were the taker. They were superior, you were inferior. You'd have to pay them back, but in addition to paying them back, you would have to also pay them by 
singing their praises at every public gathering. This guy is wonderful. He paid all my bills. He has saved my neck. He is wonderful. You'd have to follow them around and do this kind of personal PR campaign. and You would wave banners about this benefactor is so great and, and, and so amazing. And they would just kind of bask in this good talk about how generous they were. You'd have to do them favors, speak well of them, show up to these public places and gatherings to give them praise. And not all the time, I would assume, but it appears that most of the time there was a smug self-righteousness and even pretentiousness about all of this. What Paul is saying is, don't treat the Macedonian church, your brothers and sisters in Macedonia who are going through a greater economic crisis, they have even less than you do, don't treat them this way as they are the beneficiary and you're the benefactor. They are the lesser, you are the greater. It's not unlike what we've participated in today. We can thank God for the cushy environment that we have to worship Him and the great facilities that have been provided for us. And when we give to those who who don't have a building, who don't have a space to worship like we do, it could be easy to slip into an attitude of, well, it's so good that we helped those poor people. And without even knowing it, we slip into this idea of us being the benefactor and them being the beneficiary. And, and we are superior, they, they are inferior. But Paul says, you need to learn from the Macedonian church. You need to learn from those who have gone through the greatest financial struggle of any of your brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, the economic downturn, it may not be as bad for you as the Macedonian churches, but... Don't expect a PR campaign from them of how wonderful you are because you've given a gift. And here's what Paul does. He tells the Corinthian church, everything you know about money is upside down. You are not the benefactor, even though you're giving of money. You are the beneficiary because everything you have is God's and everything you give away, you are a beneficiary sharing what's been given to you. He says everything that you have is given by the grace of God. He takes their arrogant position and puts them in a humble position. He takes their superior position and puts it in an inferior position. God is the benefactor. Every believer is the beneficiary for the grace and the resources he's poured on us. So what does that mean to us today? How can we learn from what Paul is teaching the church of Corinth? What would he say to the church of Fort Wayne, to the church of Grace Point? He would say that your home is God's. Your clothes are God's. Your vehicles are God's. Your bank account is God's. Your retirement account is God's. Your vacation time is God's. Your abilities and talents and gifts, they are God's. All of it is God's. You're not this amazing, well-to-do person, and someone around you that you choose to help is this lower beneficiary. You are the beneficiary. I'm the beneficiary, and God is the benefactor. That means that we're not owners. We are stewards of what he has given to us. The whole tone of this passage is one of what it means to be generous. You see, if I view money as as my money, then the call to give seems optional because it is my money. But if all the resources I have is God's resources, the call to be generous and give is something that I can get in on and I can be excited about it and joy can flow out of my heart because it's not mine to begin with and I can give it. Paul is saying God is a generous giver and, and you need to be generous like the Macedonian churches are generous. 
I, I was feeling kind of generous this morning, and uh, I, I need like four volunteers. Kind of a dangerous thing to volunteer in church. Do I have four volunteers? You just raise your hand. I, I won't embarrass you or make you do anything silly. Okay, I've got one over here. Why don't you come up? Come on up. I've got one right here, and uh, let's see here. One right there. You've got a haircut like mine. I love it. Your hand's on top of your head. Come on, join me. Yes. If you're scratching your head, you shouldn't have been doing that. Too bad. Let's see. Anybody in this section over here want to help me? No? Very good. Why don't you come join me? Come, come right up here and stand at the altar. Very good. All right. Oh, you know what? I was feeling kind of generous, and so I just want to give out a little bit of money to you today. And uh, it's not a lot of money, but it, it's some money, and I want you to, to have this. And uh, uh, I, I want you to know this is my money. This is not like what we're doing with tithe money. So before I get like 6,000 emails, uh, we're not just handing out cash at church. This should be a reason to come to first and second service. Uh, you could have got in on this twice, but, you know, that, that's, that's how it is. Well, I want you to have this money. I'm going to give this to you, but I, I want to ask you to do something with it. In this next week, I want you to look for a way for you to invest this to be generous to someone else or in some project. Now, you choose however you're going to do that, and I want you to invest it in, in any way that you want to. And the next week, I want you to share either a word, one word, or one sentence on what you felt led to do with that money. All right? Now, you may say, well, I didn't know about that. I don't know that I want to come up anymore. And I'm going to give you an out. You can say, no, I don't want to do this. I want to sit down. You find someone else because I want to do it. Anybody want to, like, say, I don't want to do this? Anybody? Bueller? Okay, very good. Um, you can go ahead and have a seat. And next week, I'm going to ask that you just share one word or one sentence on what you did with that. Thank you, guys. Let's give our volunteers a hand. I stop and share for a minute because uh, for these individuals, and if you were one of them, to invest that money to be generous to somebody doesn't seem that hard. I mean, Sure. I'm just going to look for someone who needs something, and I'm going to give it away because it's not my money, really. I mean, Brady gave it to me, and and so I'm just going to give it away, and that was the understanding. This is the picture that Paul is trying to say. Everything that you've received, you're just the beneficiary. God has given it to you. You are to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to you. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. Uh, Let's begin to move on, but before we do, At this point, I'm convinced that there may be someone here today who would say, you know what, I knew it. I knew it. And you may hear things in your mind like this, that Pastor Brady and Grace Point Church want my money. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I want you to hear me clearly. I and your church do not want something from you We want something for you. We want you to experience the amazing gift that God has given to you in his grace and what it feels like to give and be a generous giver. Don't let the enemy twist and turn what it is I'm trying to share today and make you think that this is about trying to get something from you. God doesn't need your money. God wants all of you. And sometimes we hang on to things so tight that before we can even give them ourselves, we have to realize that what he has given to us, we hang on so tightly to. Let's continue to explore in rapid fire a, a handful of other principles that Paul is teaching this church. 
Number two, generosity reminds us of Jesus' cross. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might, you might become rich. See, money is a reflection in our theological convictions. Our understanding of God and how we feel about him is, could be represented in the way we view money. If you say that Jesus died on the cross for you and he paid the sin debt for you, then I want to ask you, how generous should you be? You might say, well, what does money have to do with my spirituality? Everything. If you believe that God is generous, then you should be generous. If you believe that God is a giver, then you should be a giver. If you believe that God helps people, then you should help people. Not because you have to, but because you get to. When we're generous with others, we are reminding them of the generosity that Jesus has given to us. Hear me clearly, this is more of a gospel issue than it is a financial issue. This is that we are carriers of the good news. We are recipients of God's grace. And so our generosity quotient should be in relationship to the good news that we carry. It's not a financial thing as much as it is a gospel thing that has financial implications. That's what Paul was trying to teach. Number three, he moved on and showed that generosity is measured proportionately. Ten and twelve, here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have a desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. See, we are to give out of what's been entrusted to us, and there should be a a proportional aspect to what we are giving. At this point, sometimes someone asks about tithing. What does the church believe about tithing, or what are you saying about tithing? Well, in the Old Testament, we see a principle of giving a tithe, which is 10% of what comes in, and giving that to the storehouse, the local church, the local community of believers, where you are fed, and, and giving in that area. The Scripture is clear about that. But that was the beginning, and in the Old Testament, there was offerings and gatherings where they would give to help the widows, to help the poor, to help the Levites, uh, the religious leaders then at the time. And there was offerings for uh, feasts and festivals, and the Old Testament percentage was closer to 25 to 30 percent. Often we wave a flag and we say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian pastor, I'm under grace, I'm under the new covenant, and that's an Old Testament thing, and so, uh, you know, that, I don't really know where I feel about tithing, and, and, and I definitely don't feel that about the 20-some-thing percent you're talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm a new covenant person. Oh, fine. Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Well, Pastor, what I meant was I'm kind of a new and an Old Testament. What are you trying to say? Well, God is trying to help us get in a heart of being generous. Why? Because he is the benefactor. We are the beneficiary. When we feel so good that we have all this stuff and we're just helping some lowly person or some lowly event out, some weird things begin to grow in our heart. But when I begin to give out of the understanding of what has been given to me, there is a whole bunch of good that can happen inside of us. Do we believe in tithing? Yes. Do we believe in proportionate giving? Yes. Well, what do you mean? 
There's a few statistics that can help us here. Not always, but typically the poor give proportionately more as far as sacrificial giving. Statistically, the more money we make, often the less sacrifice we make. We may be giving a similar percentage, but the sacrifice appears to be different the more we have. For example, the widow who the woman who gave the widow's mite, it was one coin, but it was a hundred percent of what she had. Her sacrifice was greater than anyone else. I'll never forget going on that missions trip in Mexico when I was a student. I was on a student trip, and we were building a church. And uh, I had not been on any kind of work project like that before. I worked harder then than I had in my entire life, and we were building a church by hand. We were digging footers by hand. I didn't know what footers were until I went on that trip, and I don't like them very much because you've got to dig them out. We were mixing concrete by hand. We were pouring all that stuff and working so hard, and we got to the end of the day, and we were hungry. And uh, our trip planners had planned well, and we all had raised money to go out to eat, and we had plenty of options, and I was looking forward to going to some kind of a place where I could choose off of a menu what it was I wanted to eat, because I was hungry, I was tired. And and I'm not uh, that adventurous of an eater now, and I was even more wimpy then, and so, like, you just need to know, like, I'm a boneless wings guy, like, chicken on the bone is weird, I don't don't like that, it's kind of gross. And so... When I was told that there was a lady in the church who wanted to prepare a meal for us, I thought, oh, now I don't get to choose what it is I'm going to eat, but that's all right. And so I sat down to this meal with all the other people on the team, and and she began to pass out the food, and and I saw that it was tamales. Well, I didn't know what a tamale was. I looked for a red box with candy in it, and that wasn't what it was. But... I saw this tamale, and I'm like, okay, this looks kind of burrito-esque. I, I can do this. And, and I picked it up, and I, I bit into this tamale, and I, I felt a crunch. And, and I don't like kind of crunch like that. And so I, I, I backed off of it, and out fell a chicken skull. And no longer am I worried about chicken on the bone. I'm thinking skulls should not be in, in food. This is not, this is not right. And so not wanting to be too rude, I just set it down on the plate, and I took my napkin and put it on top of it, and I tried to not, you know, make too many gross faces. And, and I started to walk quietly over to the trash can, and as soon as I let go of my plate to put it in the trash can, out of the corner of my eye, I saw the lady who had prepared the food for us. And I felt pretty dumb about myself. And I thought, oh, man. And she was walking over to me, and I thought, here, I've offended her. And and my stomach sunk even deeper once the person next to me hollered at me and said, Brady, she gave an entire week's worth of wages to pay for that meal. And now I'm feeling about this small. And she walks over. I'm thinking, well, she's going to be offended and hurt, and I just need to take it. And, and, And the opposite happened. And she said, sir, would you like something else? Here, she had an understanding of sacrifice and generosity that I'd never even dreamed of. And when I didn't respond right, her attitude was, could I give you more? This understanding that Paul teaches fits very well with this experience, and you may have had some too, where the Macedonian church was setting the pace for what it meant to be generous. It wasn't about giving the same amount of money. It was about a proportionate sacrifice. Let's move on. Generosity enables equality. In uh, chapter 8, verse 13 and 15, you can begin to see there in that passage, I'll let you skim that and read it for yourself. These aren't my words. There's Paul, these are Paul words. The one who gathers much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. In essence, there was an equality. Every need was being met. 
Every person is valuable to God. We are equal in God's eyes. There's not a first-class Christian and a second-class Christian and so on. Now, this does not mean that every Christian will live in the exact same type of house. That's not what this passage is talking about. It does not mean that every Christian should and will have the same income. That's not what this passage is talking about. But what it's saying is every Christian should and will have the opportunity to have the same proportion of sacrifice. Because you can have the same ability to have joy overflowing in your heart. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have. You can sacrifice deeply with whatever God has entrusted to you. See, this 10% figure is a starting point for the church. And we grow in understanding of what it means to be sacrificial givers. Generosity requires godly Stewardship. In chapter 8, 16 through 23, we begin to see how the leaders there begin to put people in place to make sure the offerings that were given get to the right place. They get to the right location. It's exciting for me to report to you that our church here at Grace Point has great checks and balances of being good stewards of what has been given. Uh, Every year, uh, at least 16% of what comes in is given away to other ministries outside of ourselves, and often there are years when it's close to 20% that we give away. Now now hear me on this, 100% of what is given is used for ministry. All of it is used to advance the kingdom. But we feel so impressed that we want to make sure that we are investing in kingdom work outside this property, outside these walls. You are a part of a church that has been and will continue to be generous, and we are good stewards of what God has given to us. It may not be as as needed in this part of the country as places I've served in the past, but in case there's some who don't know, I want you to know. We have a great system of accountability in our church. I do not own this church. My name is not on the title of this property, this building. One, this is Jesus' church, not my church. And we have an elected board who is governing to help guide the direction of the church with the help of the senior pastor. In fact, in every level of our institution in the Church of the Nazarene, there is always a body of lay leaders and a clergy or a body of, of pastors together. And we go side by side together as we lead at the local level, at the district, which is a team of churches that we have in a geographic area, at the international level, it happens that way. We need to be good, godly stewards of what he's given to us. What does that look like in your life? What does it look like in my life? Paul was setting up some of those things. Let's move on to number six. Generosity is about sowing and reaping. We see in verse six of chapter nine. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. As you continue to read down this passage, you begin to see that the harvest is full, and it's a harvest of righteousness that's given. Money is like sowing a seed. You plant an investment, and God will bless it, and it will grow. Now, I want you to hear me clear today. This is not prosperity theology. We need to be careful. This is not saying that I'm going to give God $100, and God spits out a million. 
I just love this thing with God. It's a get-rich-quick scheme, you know. I give God 10, he gives me 100. That is nowhere in this principle we find in this passage. God gives us blessing above the seed, but what is the harvest? It's righteousness. He blesses us in so many ways. Now, God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. And I've heard some of the stories you've told me, and I've experienced some myself. When I give financially, sometimes God blesses me financially. He's chosen to do that. But this is not something to be manipulated or try to get God in a box. This is about teaching us to have a generous heart. That we sow and then we reap. The, the size of the window that we give through is often the size of the window that we are blessed and we receive through. We are to be generous in whatever God has entrusted to us. The Bible talks about a couple different types of people. It doesn't just refer to people as poor or as rich. There is the righteous rich. There is the unrighteous rich. There is the righteous poor, the unrighteous poor. But the Bible talks more about righteous and unrighteous. Now, we need to get this right because if if we don't, we're going to miss it. We're going to go on one side to prosperity theology and think that, you know what? If, if If I give, God wants me to be a millionaire. Every Christian, God wants them to be financially rich. Every Christian, God wants them to flourish. Friends, this is not a Bible doctrine. It's a popular doctrine. I understand it. I mean, it sounds exciting. It's just not the Bible. Jesus is an example of a righteous poor. It says the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He was practically homeless. But we need to be careful. This is one ditch, but the road needs to be in the middle. And sometimes we go to the other side and we start thinking or or talking or preaching poverty theology. Well, if Jesus was poor, then anybody who has wealth is sinning. If anybody who has things of means that they are sinning, absolutely not. The principles of generosity is the, the, the road that we can give with equal sacrifice. And we begin to understand I can sow with what I have and I can reap with what God is blessing. Finally, number seven on generosity. Generosity is an evidence. It's not the evidence, it's an evidence that someone is a Christian. Verse three of chapter or thirteen of chapter nine, because they because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Well, what is this saying? That people began to see that they were associated with Jesus by the way that they were generous. This is not the evidence, the only evidence, this is an evidence of being a Christian. Understanding that our possessions are not ours. Worshiping Jesus, not worshiping our stuff. As we close this morning, I want you to hear some words from author Christian Smith. He's a leading religious sociologist with a Ph.D. from Harvard in his book, Passing the Plate. Americans do not often view themselves as living in abundance. Most Americans in the middle class view themselves just getting by. Calculated out from the U.S. alone, self-identified Bible-believing Christians who attend church twice a month or more consider themselves to be Bible-believing Christians. If you you calculate their reported earnings, it comes to $2.5 trillion. If all those strong U.S. Christians, with their own, if they were their own nation, they would be the sixth wealthiest nation on the planet. 
Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. Christian Smith goes on to say, earning higher incomes does not make American Christians more generous with their money, apparently. It appears that it actually has the opposite effect of being more stingy, more protective, and more distrustful. The wealthiest nation, the body of believers, of all time, end up spending most of their money on themselves. These are the thoughts of Christian Smith. That's an interesting perspective. Sometimes when I read a report like that, I don't want to believe it. Because I know some people like you, and I know some people who've been a part of a long history of a church like Grace Point that has been faithful and generous and giving to others. But friends, I want to encourage you today. Let's not let our past obedience be what we lean on. Let's continue to move and asking God, help us to be a generous people. I want to repeat again, I hope that you hear today, not Pastor Brady and Grace Point want something from me. Your pastor, your church, your Heavenly Father wants something for you. As we pray this morning, we get ready to shift gears and take off. I want us to ask God to prompt us. Is there anything in us that needs to change so we can be even more generous? For some of us, we need to view those who we're giving to not as less than, but an equal brother and sister. For some of us, the takeaway may be that we need to be challenged to get in on God's economy and start at his entry-level point on, on giving a 10% a tithe. Others, maybe it's in the area of examining is tithing really sacrificial for me anymore is that very comfortable for me maybe we need to say god i'm I'm willing to give to your local church but when it comes to giving of myself and my community and of my time and of my resources to the people around me i'm very skeptical of helping somebody would i be known as a christian by an evidence of my generosity or would it be like the rest of the servers who in just a few minutes are begging to trade their shift with someone else because lunch hour on Sunday is the worst hour to receive tips because Christians are known to be so stingy? Let's pray together and ask God to bring some conviction to our heart. Father, I thank you for your truth that you first gave to a gathering similar to us in Corinth. You chose Paul to speak your words to bring a, a note of correction that the Macedonian church though they had very little they were setting the pace for what it meant to be generous God I thank you for Grace Point and its long history and being faithful and giving to others and on this Alabaster Sunday as we give to help other churches have the resources for building space that they need I pray that you'll help us to view this day and the opportunity to give all year long to missions and in our tithe and offerings a little bit differently. I pray that you'll begin to set our hearts free from what maybe we have held on to for so long as our own view of us being a benefactor, the owner, and everybody else being the receiver, the beneficiary. But God, as we go today, I pray that you'll remind us that every single one of us is just managing, just stewarding what you have entrusted to us. As you speak, we are hungry to obey. We ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.